Today we're going to look at verse 12 to 19. And to kind of start out this teaching, what I want you to be thinking about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share some phrases with you that come from the life of David and really mostly come from the Psalms. Things that he said about God. And as I'm sharing these with you, what I want you to do is I want you to ask yourself, what kind of person says these things? What kind of life circumstance or situation would cause a person to say these things about God? David said things like this. He said, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. You know, isn't there the assumption that what he, what he was going through was a man who he felt that he had no refuge. He felt he needed a place of protection. And so he says, Lord, in you I take refuge. He says in another place, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. So probably you're dealing with a man there who felt defenseless. He felt that he needed help from somewhere. And he says, God, you are my shield. Or he said in another place, I love you, O Lord, my strength. So likely feeling weak, he needed the strength of God. Or, oh my God, in you I trust, let me not be put to shame. So something going on in his life that he fears will cause him shame or embarrassment, but he's praying to God, God, would you keep me from shame? I trust in you. Or the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Or I love this one. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And beyond just these phrases from David, I want you to think about some of the titles that David gave to God. He called God his shepherd. He called God his rock. He called God his fortress. He called God his deliverer. Now, to be sure, there were times that David wrote things like this about God when he was suffering because of a sin that he'd committed. So consequences, that's what we call them. But all of these statements come from times in David's life where he was suffering for righteousness' sake. Times where he was being a good man, a godly man, a man after God's own heart, yet someone somewhere did something to him that put his life in jeopardy. There he is, walking with God, allegiant to God, obedient to God, and then these things unfold in his life. But as he's going through these things, David has this discovery about who God is. And the reason I'm starting there with this teaching today is because the text that we're about to jump into, I think is a passage of scripture that highlights that very same reality for us. See, millions of believers have endured and experienced what David has experienced in his own life. That here I am walking with God, I'm minding my own business, I'm serving Jesus, I'm allegiant to him, I'm walking in the fear of the Lord, and now this pressure is coming against me. This marginalization is occurring, or even in some cultures and societies, persecution is coming my way for my belief and my trust in Jesus. But in those moments, there's an opportunity an opportunity to learn about who God is, an opportunity to become a deeper, closer friend of God, to experience him in beautiful and powerful ways. And many believers have discovered this over church history. People have fallen into the pit, but God was waiting for them at the bottom. 
Like Daniel, when he went into the lion's den, perhaps even expecting death, what they found there was life. And this often occurs. We sing, you're a good, good father. But as much as we're able to sing that, have you stopped to consider that the church in the parts of the world where it's illegal to be a Christian, or the church in parts of the world where you're persecuted for being a Christian, or the imprisoned church, imprisoned for the gospel, they also can sing, you're a good, good father. There's something in the midst of suffering for Jesus that can draw a person closer to the Lord, where you can learn beautiful things about God. And sometimes when we're feeling marginalized for our Christianity, we might say, like Jesus did on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, why is this happening. I feel like this shouldn't be occurring, but the reality is is that God will press through that. He'll pursue his people. And it's this facet of suffering that I want us to think about today. I, I know that many of you are concerned about the future, and I'm definitely concerned. I have concerns as well. I don't root for society to become more hostile to Christian beliefs or doctrines or people. But on the other hand, I want to express to you, I'm very excited about the future. I think that there's an opportunity in the body of Christ. You see, it's not hard for me to imagine that in 20 years' time, we will have a purer, more devoted, stronger church. I just don't think there's going to be room for fluffy Christianity to even be a thing in a couple of decades. Casual Christianity won't work for anyone. And we might be left with a pruned church, but a more fruitful church as a result. One that's alive because everyone is connected vitally to God. And that's what I want us to think about today, our connection to God, because that's what the text gives to us. So let's start with verse 12 and 13 and think about our friendship with the second person of the Trinity. That's what we're going to do is think about our friendship with God in the Trinity, the the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. So let's start with our closeness with Jesus in verse 12 and 13. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. All right, here, Peter begins this passage by just being a good pastor. He starts encouraging his congregation, and what he tells them is that their suffering for Jesus meant that they were suffering with Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 13. He said, they shared in Christ's sufferings. They shared in Christ's sufferings. That word shared is a word that means to commune with, to fellowship with, or to be in close relationship with someone or something. Paul, when he wrote to the Philippian church, he said in Philippians 3 verse 10 that he longed to know Jesus partly through the fellowship of his suffering. So he knew that as he was suffering for Jesus, he was getting to know Jesus in a fresh way. There were facets of Jesus he could not know when everything was peaceful in his life. And I think Paul understood intensely how when he suffered because of his love for Jesus, 
Jesus connected himself to Paul. Part of the reason that I think he understood that is because of the story of his conversion. I don't know if you remember it, but in Acts chapter 9, Paul was not yet known as Paul. He was known as Saul. Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, and he was a persecutor of the church. He hated the church. And he was on his way in Acts chapter 9 to the Syrian city of Damascus with letters in his hands that gave him permission to throw Christians into prison there in Damascus. He was trying to snuff out this new Christian, um, you know, in his mind, cult. And so he's on his way to Damascus when a bright light shines. He's knocked to the ground, and he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now, Jesus wasn't standing there on the road in Damascus. Jesus had been in heaven for a number of years at that point. He'd already risen from the dead and ascended back to the right hand of the Father. But Paul, when he, or Saul, when he was persecuting Jesus's people to Jesus, it was as if he was persecuting Jesus. Jesus identified, in other words, with the suffering of his people in his name. So Peter tells us that we should rejoice when we share in Christ's sufferings, partly because it just means that we're on the right track. We're deepening our friendship with the Lord. Jesus even said himself, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So partly this helps a Christian know, well, I'm in the right, I'm on the right uh, track. I'm, I'm heading in the right direction. So if you're ever ridiculed for a biblical doctrine that you hold, if you're ever ridiculed for a biblical lifestyle choice that you make, or when someone thinks that you're ridiculous for believing in this book, you know, those are all parts of this. You should bring up in your mind the knowledge that Jesus was also rejected. The world hated him first. Now, in other places, you know, as Tate just kind of mentioned, she talked about James 1 and in James chapter 1 and in other places in the New Testament, we're comforted about trials because we know that God is doing something in us through them. You know, James chapter 1 tells us that we are to count it all joy when we fall into various trials uh, because they produce in us steadfastness. There's an endurance that is produced, so character building. But in this first little section, Peter's not saying, hey, Rejoice when you suffer for Jesus because it's building your character. That's not what Peter's saying here. What Peter's saying here is when you suffer for Jesus, rejoice in that moment because you're getting close to Jesus through that experience. In other words, there are certain things about him that you just can't know unless you suffer for and in his name. In this perspective, is so much better than the opposite perspective. The opposite perspective is what he mentioned in verse 12. Look at it again. We already read it, but he said, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, if you don't see suffering for Jesus as sharing in Jesus' sufferings, then what you'll inevitably think is that suffering for Jesus is a surprising and strange experience that ought not be. And why would we be shocked and insulted 
or feel it strange when suffering for Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself, he's the one that suffered on the cross. He's our Lord and Master and Savior. But why might we be surprised? Well, one reason why we might be surprised is because we take sometimes correct doctrines and we come to incorrect conclusions. So think about it like this. You guys have all thought about the idea that God is good. That's a correct doctrine. That's a, that's a thing that we deduce from Scripture. God is good all the time. God is good. Uh, we also come to Scripture and learn that as God's children, when you believe in Jesus, you become one of God's children. You, you, you're brought into his family. These are true doctrines. But sometimes our conclusion to a true doctrine like that is, well, that must mean that I will never suffer for his name. But that's just not the reality. We might think to ourselves, why is this happening to me? I thought I was God's child. I thought we were his favored people. And we might be like the baby that's being put into the bathtub. I remember whenever we'd give our, our girls baths when they were little, you know, it was just like they would look at you at a certain age. They just kind of didn't understand what was going on. They'd just look at you like you're murdering them, you know, kind of thing. And at times we might feel that way, like, God, you're good. I'm your child, yet here I am. I'm part of this marginalized people, and it just doesn't seem like things are going well. What's happening? We've come to an incorrect conclusion to correct doctrines. We also straightforwardly might just have incorrect beliefs. That's another reason why we might be surprised when we enter into the fiery trial for our faith. You know, a lot of Christians join a lot of other religious people by holding a cause and effect view of nearly everything in life. You know, the religious leaders in Jesus' day thought that way. Jesus' disciples uh, thought that way. I don't know if you remember the episode where there was a man that was blind, and Jesus' disciples, they went to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, we got a theological question for you. Maybe you could settle this one for us. Who sinned in this guy's case? Was it the man, his sin caused blindness, or was it the sin of his parents? And the answer was neither, because he just was blind because he lived in a fallen and broken world, and so there's infirmities and sicknesses and illnesses. But that cause and effect, kind of like that sanctified view of karma, is so often what believers will hold on to. So when we're suffering for him, it, we're, we can be confused. We, we might think, I've been faithful, I've walked with God, I believed and trusted in him, why am I suffering for it? And I think our surprise could also stem from incorrect expectations. You know, the word gospel literally means good news. So it seems like a shock to us to hear the good news of the gospel and then also hear, and you know what? Like there's gonna be times throughout human history where you suffer for this good news that you believe in. It kind of doesn't sound like good news to us then. Like, how is that good news? But the idea is not that it's such good news that you won't ever suffer. It, it actually means it's such good news that it's worth suffering for. It's kind of the concept. Still, I think it's right that there is a sense that remains within us when we're being pushed to the side, or especially when persecution occurs, that something is wrong, something must be off. I think what that is in a lot of ways, it's just the echoes of the Garden of Eden in our souls. We were created and meant to live in perfect peace and harmony with God. 
And it's also, if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God within you drawing you home in the future, wanting you to long for that eternal future city with God. And all of that causes us to long for something different. And for that, I want you to look at one word in verse 13. Peter said, we must rejoice in so far. That's the word I want you to see. He says, in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That word, in so far, is important because it hints at a connection. The more that we rejoice in our suffering for Christ now, the more we will rejoice when Christ comes in glory. And why is this true? Well, it's basically true because if you don't like Jesus today, why would you like Jesus tomorrow? But if Jesus is everything to you today and you're connecting with him even in his suffering, then of course his glory will be cause for great celebration. So all that to just say that I think these first couple of verses show us that as we're enduring trials in the name of Jesus or for Jesus, uh, the reality is, is that Jesus is walking with us in the midst of that. You know, there's a time in Paul's life where he, right before he died, he wrote a letter. I don't know if you guys know that. Second Timothy is that letter. He knew he was about to be, in his words, poured out as a drink offering. He knew he was going to die. And he told Timothy, as he recounted his life story, he said, you know, the first time I was arrested and had to give an account for my life, um, everybody forsook me. All the other Christians, they all forsook me. He said, but the Lord stood with me. You see, when you suffer for Jesus, Jesus is walking with you in the midst of that. And I don't know who of you needs to hear that this morning. I don't know who of you needs to be encouraged by the presence of Christ as you endure suffering in and for his name. But I do know that the last couple of years have been really hard for a lot of you. I know that you've suffered loss. I know that there have been estranged relationships. There have been divisions that have occurred, things that you just didn't anticipate happening, you didn't want to have happen in your life. I know there have been sadnesses and shifts and all this kind of stuff that occurs. And some of that might have actually happened to you as a suffering for Jesus. And you just need to know the Lord is walking with you in the midst of that. He is standing with you in the midst of that. Jesus experienced sadnesses. Jesus experienced betrayals. Jesus experienced sorrows and loss and misunderstanding. Jesus experienced all of those things. And he's walking with you in the midst of those things today. But the second thing I want to show you is not just that we get friendship with Jesus, but also friendship with the Spirit. And for that, we need to look at verse 14 to 16, if you look in your Bibles. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. All right, here what Peter does is he, he kind of inserts in the middle of this little paragraph a qualifying statement. Uh, he wanted them, and I think he wants us, to double-check something. You know, before we call something suffering for Jesus, we have to double-check and make sure it actually is suffering for 
uh, Jesus. What he says in verse 15 is to this church, he says, make sure you're not suffering for things like theft or evil or meddling uh, or murder. You know, make sure that you're not giving in to those kind of things. And this, of course, is helpful to us in even our modern time. We have to make sure that we're not insulted or ridiculed as believers for things that are worthy of insult and ridicule. We have to make sure that we're not sinning. We have to make sure we're not suffering for lack of wisdom or lack of discernment. You know, Jonah, if he was standing here today talking about his episode with the great fish, he could not say to us, like, man, that was really rough. You know, that was persecution. He couldn't say that. That was just his own folly that had brought him into that stage of life. So we have to be careful with that kind of thing. But I think Peter is saying more than simply, hey, make sure you're not suffering for foolishness or for sin. I think he's pointing out four specific temptations that persecuted believers feel that they might want to enter into. The first thing that he mentions is murder. When a group of people are being violently treated, they're actually receiving physical violence, the temptation is to lash out with violence as a response up to the point of taking someone else's life. I mean, I made the joke at the 930 service. Uh, I've, I've prayed with a lot of people over the years. A lot of people have come up to me after services and said, I'm really struggling with temptation right now. And when we get into it, I don't know yet. I can't really remember, but I don't think I've had anybody who said like, it's murder. I'm tempted right now. I think it's just always like three or four sins. I know what they might be. But this is something that when, you're, when someone's being violent to you, you might actually be tempted to go there. Or the second one that he mentioned was theft. When you're financially persecuted, like many of these believers were about to be, their land stolen or their home stolen, when you're financially persecuted, you start rolling up your sleeves and thinking, well, that I, you know, I've got to provide, I've got to figure this out, and so you might be tempted to steal. Or doing evil is the third thing that he mentions there in that list. When someone treats you in a wicked way, what do you want to do? The natural man wants to respond to that wickedness in a wicked way. But the weapons that we use are not meant to emulate the weapons that are used against us. And then the fourth one is kind of trippy. He says meddling. It's just kind of like, where does that, how does that fit? With, you got murder, theft, evil doing. Also meddling. Like, where does that one fit in? Paul the Apostle was actually concerned about this particular sin when he wrote his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, because he told Timothy in those churches they were supposed to take care of widows who could not care for themselves of a certain age. But Paul was careful to make sure that able-bodied widows who were young enough that he didn't want them to be supported by the church. And this is why. He said, if they're on your church list, they will learn to be lazy and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business, and talking about things they shouldn't. <laughs> this is kind of a thing that the New Testament writers were concerned about. And I think if they could see how well, we've perfected meddling in our modern social media age, they'd be pretty impressed. Like, wow, you guys have taken it to the next level. But in times of suffering for Jesus, that, these are things that we're tempted to do. We're tempted towards hateful or murderous vengeance. We're tempted towards thieving. We're tempting toward, tempted towards returning evil for evil and also tempted towards privately pushing people to do what we want them to do. But God's people 
must make sure to double-check that we aren't suffering for things like that, but for our devotion to Christ. Okay, once that check is in place, we can go back to the exhortation or the good news that, that Paul, or excuse me, that Peter gives to us. He says to us that we're blessed in these three verses if we are insulted or suffering for the name of Christ. We're blessed if we're insulted or suffering for the name of Christ. It's a powerful truth. I think we need to let that sink in. We're blessed because of that. This might remind some of you of the words of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When Jesus said things like that, what he was highlighting was, hey, when you suffer in that way, it really identifies you as God's people, and you have the blessing of having the kingdom and getting the reward for that endurance and suffering in heaven. But here, Peter's not encouraging us like that. It's true, but that's not what Peter's saying. Peter says something different. Notice what he said in verse 14. He said, we're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. We are blessed for the kingdom of heaven and the rewards that will come, but we are also blessed, according to Peter, for the spirit of God being upon our lives when we are suffering in Jesus' name. Just as the sufferings of Christ draw us close to Jesus, the sufferings of Christ also release fresh power from the Spirit of God upon our lives. And I think this aspect of what Peter has to say to us is really important. It's the idea that there's a special relationship in store for you with God's Spirit when you suffer for Jesus in any way. It's different than just your normal relationship with God's Spirit. You know, last week we talked about the gifts of the Spirit, right? But here, what Peter is saying is that the Spirit himself is a gift for those especially who are being marginalized for Jesus' sake. And the reason why it's so special is because the Spirit comes upon us to help us. When you see the word upon related to the Spirit of God, what you can know is that this means the part of God's Spirit who will help you be effective for Jesus. The Spirit in you kind of directs your life, guides your life, encourages you, illuminates Scripture for you, but the Spirit upon you makes you more effective here on earth. Jesus said it like this as an example in Mark 13, verse 11. He said, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So what an exciting thing. Like these guys, he says, you know, there's gonna be times you get arrested, beaten, whatever, and when they bring you forward to give an explanation, you don't even have to think in advance what you might say, because in that moment, you're, you're a persecuted person, in that moment, my spirit is gonna come upon you and put the words in your mouth to testify and speak in that very hour. That's an exciting experience. It's powerful. 
And nothing compares to the presence of God, especially as he uses your life. Now, this is important, and this is special because, I don't know if you know this, but there's like a whole niche industry of books and articles that have been written over the last, you know, hundreds of years on what is wrong with the church and what needs to happen in the church. People are always hand-wringing. Here's what's wrong with the church. Here's what's wrong with it. Here's what's wrong with the church. Here's what we got to do. Here's how we got to fix things or whatever it might be. But ask yourself, why was the church in the book of Acts so dynamic and powerful and effective? It wasn't many of the things that those books purport. It was the Spirit of God upon them, upon them, empowering them, strengthening them, working in fresh and amazing ways in their lives. And so perhaps we should see suffering for Christ as an avenue that leads to great blessing. Perhaps we're meant to lean less on human ingenuity and strategy during times that Christianity is under duress. Maybe we're meant to cling more intensely to God so that his spirit can be poured out upon us so that we can become more dynamic and effective than ever before. You see, God is about the mission. That's what he wants to be about. That's what he wants to get done. And so here he's saying, look, it's a blessing when this happens to you because the spirit of God will come upon you. The spirit of God will empower you for the work. But let's close by thinking lastly about our friendship with God the Father. We've thought about the Son and the Spirit, but now the Father in verse 17 to 19. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right, here Peter talks to us about our relationship with God the Father. We're getting close to Jesus during trials for Jesus. We're getting close to the Spirit during trials for Jesus. But we also have an opportunity to get close to the Father when we suffer in Jesus' name. And part of this closeness comes from the fact that God will use our suffering for Christ as a way to purify us. That's what Peter means when he says in verse 17, it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. When we think of God as judge, I think we think of God's permanent and negative judgment upon humanity. And God is the ultimate judge. God will judge every human being. God is the decider of between heaven and hell for every soul. And Peter alludes to that when he says, hey, what's going to happen to those who don't obey the gospel of God? What's going to happen if the righteous is scarcely, scarcely saved? What will happen to the ungodly and the sinner? But here, Peter is not alluding to for Christians when he says judgment must begin at the house of God. He's not talking about something that is permanent or negative, but something that is right now and positive in our lives. In other words, what Peter means is that the afflictions we endure for Jesus today, the persecution or the slander or the marginalization, they are one major way that God refines us as his people. 
You know, he loves you. He loves me. When, when God looks at us, he sees us as he sees his only begotten son. But that doesn't mean that God is unconscious or unaware of our imperfections. He sees us positionally as righteous, but there are things he's trying to do to make us a better people for his purposes. And one method that God uses to reform and reshape us is suffering for Christ. God the judge acts to remake his people through the pains of Christian suffering. It's like God uses it as a plumb line to straighten us out or as a fire meant to purify and burn away the imperfections. That's part of the reason that Paul, or excuse me, Peter keeps calling this a fiery trial. The idea is, is that these exiled trials, they cleanse God's people. And to Peter, when persecution comes to the church, Part of the reason is that it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. All this leads me to conclude that perhaps we should get better at seeing the current marginalization of the church in modern societies as God's hand of purification. Perhaps God is creating for himself a stronger, holier, purer church for himself. And in the midst of that, notice what Peter says we're to do. Look at verse 19 as we wrap it up today. He said, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust our souls. What does the word entrust mean? It means like you, you know when you go to the bank and you deposit your paycheck the idea is that you're entrusting, you're depositing that money there for safekeeping. You're saying to them, hey, it's better for you to hold on to it than for me to hold on to it. So I'm going to give it to you for safekeeping. That's the idea. He's saying, take your soul and entrust it to God. I think a lot of us, though, sometimes we, we're, we're tempted, aren't we? We think, if no one defends me, who will defend me? If, if, if I don't have a shield, I gotta be my own shield. If I don't have a defense, I gotta be my own defense. And what we end up doing is entrusting our souls to ourselves. We're like those taking their money and putting it under the mattress or in the sock drawer, thinking that we'll do a better job keeping an eye on things. But Peter says, no, we've got to entrust our souls to God. That's our responsibility to say, God, you can take care of my soul. Even though you're the one allowing me to go through these fiery trials, I'm glad to go through them with you because it says that there's a limit to these fiery trials. You exist, so you won't let them go beyond what they're meant to be. And you're going to deliver me ultimately from all these trials. You're walking with me in the midst of them. You're defending me and protecting me and watching over me, so I entrust my soul into your care. Rather than being self-defenders, we need to entrust our souls to the Lord. And what we're supposed to focus on is found also there in verse 19. He says, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Well, what's my job? Doing good. That's the focus I'm to have in life. All this to me means that we have a golden opportunity in the time that we're in right now. You know, there, there's some differences between what the people that Peter wrote to and modern Christians in the West are experiencing today. There are some differences. 
And we live in a different political environment where we have different things that are at our own recourse. But as individual believers, even separated out from being citizens and all that kind of stuff, as individual believers, we have a golden opportunity right now as, Christ, as Christianity is falling into greater and greater disfavor in the larger culture, we have a greater and greater opportunity to press in to our relationship with God. And I think this passage is showing us that there is a special relationship with God reserved for those who live with Christ in times such as these. There was life for Daniel in the lion's den, and there is life for us in exile trials. There is a good, good father, whether we're walking in suffering for Jesus or whether we're not. There are psalms to sing that can only be sung when you go through pains and hardships like these. And so we must press into the Lord and let him, to a greater and greater degree, become our friend, our God the one who empowers us and strengthens us for the life that is to come. And I believe that if we do, man, there is such crazy fruit that God is gonna bear from our lives and from our church.